Better Call Saul Season 4, Episode 5. Quite a ride is over, but we are just getting started here on the Better Call Saul post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys who, after this podcast, are headed out for a late-night snack at the doghouse. Maybe get some burner phones. I am Rob Sestrini here with Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how are you? Rob, how are you? I heard you spend a lot of your time in the doghouse. Yeah, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> that's what I've heard. I've heard that. I don't know. That's, uh, that's They must have good hot dogs there. They must. And really, uh, it's so great that all of Albuquerque's rogues gallery of criminals all hang out in one place. Yeah, just hanging out, like waiting to be served hot dogs and burner phones. And I think in Breaking Bad, some meth. So they're just ready for whatever rolls up outside the doghouse. Yeah. If Hank and Gomi only knew about this place. Now, the doghouse is that's a location that's in Breaking Bad. Yes. And I believe it's a a real location, like a working hot dog and milkshake shack in Albuquerque. So it's a great sign. Obviously, they they made good use of it in this episode. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's an oft used a couple times, at least used location in Breaking Bad. So this is familiar territory, to say the least. In fact, I think in Breaking Bad season one, episode six, Jesse goes there uh, to sell some meth or it's one of the places that's seen in a montage. And he shows up the next day, Rob. to talk to Walter White with a burner phone. So who knows what's going on there at the doghouse? Oh, wow. It's all coming together. Saul coming together. Saul coming together. Okay. So we have a lot to talk about here from this episode, which included a much buzzed about uh, flash forward from where we are now, flashback from the Breaking Bad uh, ending timeline. So uh, we'll talk about that. How's your week been, Antonio? Pretty good, Rob. Nice little Labor Day holiday. Thank you to organized labor for that holiday. Uh, that's their their day. So we're good on that. Uh, not too bad otherwise. Yeah, this is I do wish fall would show up at some point, Rob. Mm-hmm. I don't like this California weather. I'd like it to end, please. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we are halfway through this Better Call Saul season four here, Antonio. Five, te- five tenths, Rob. Five tenths. Five halfway. tenths of the way there. Yes, five out of ten. This is crazy. And as you point out, some big stuff in this episode, potentially series altering, uh, narrative altering or presentation altering moments uh, and also some fun stuff. So this was, I think, overall a very fun episode of Better Call Saul. Would you say, Rob, this was the best of the season? Yes, I would. I mean, but I don't think it's such a high hurdle to clear for the best <laughs> of the season. Not, again, not to yeah. you know say that it, anything has been bad, but there has not been anything that is uh, really iconic, I would say, so far in season four. The first episode I thought was very good just because, but it traded a lot on what happened with Chuck, obviously. So the fallout from that, some great scenes from Howard in that episode uh, and the stuff that Jimmy was dealing with, I thought that was all really good. But this is, I think this is, this is everything that you like about Better Call Saul, uh, I think on display in one thing. Mike's got his criminal thing. We got good stuff from Gus. We have lots of DNA shared and probably more DNA shared with the Breaking Bad universe than ever. Uh, And we have Jimmy running a caper uh, and getting into some stuff. And then we have stuff with uh, the courtroom and, and, and the legal aspects of what's going on. So this is everything I think Better Call Saul really does well, uh, put front and center in one episode. It benefits, I think, in some ways that it was a little longer in the runtime, but I thought overall the best episode of the season so far. Okay. All right. Our top story at the Sour is also uh, the first scene of the episode. And we have for the first time in Better Call Saul a flash forward to 
the Breaking Bad timeline, and we see uh, Jimmy in a mad dash, uh, aka uh, actually we see Saul here for the first time uh, in, in the show, and uh, he is in a mad dash to escape and get away to uh, Robert Forrester uh, to take him to the Gene timeline. To take him to the Gene timeline, take him to Nebraska, Rob. Yeah, this is uh, this is great. It's a scene that we did not see in Breaking Bad, although we've seen everything surrounding this scene. We saw what led up to this and the unfortunate and horrible events at the end of season five of Breaking Bad uh, with Ozymandias and the episodes that are right before this great escape. And then there is an episode, I think it's the second to last, the penultimate episode of Breaking Bad that begins with Saul ending up at the vacuum store. Uh, so it is it is basically the scene that happens immediately after what this scene is, which is Saul setting his way up uh, to get to the vacuum cleaner store and making the call, unloading all this stuff, getting his cash in order, making plans with Francesca. This is a square in Breaking Bad scene that we never saw in Breaking Bad. And I think we talked about on this podcast that this is something this show, Better Call Saul, can do. They can show us events from Breaking Bad from the Saul Goodman perspective that we didn't originally see in Breaking Bad. Um, this can be anything from stuff that's occurring in season one of Breaking Bad before Saul was a character on that show uh, to Saul's perspective of events that go on throughout Breaking Bad. So it's a significant moment, I think, for the show in terms of their ability to do this. I question whether it is a, a bold choice by the show in terms of their desire to continue doing it. I, I think it parallels very nicely with how the episode ends, which we'll talk about. I'm not sure it's a choice for them saying we're going to do this a lot now. I think it makes sense for why they did it in this episode. And I'll be curious to see when we'll see it again for sure. Okay. W- why this uh, particular moment, Antonio? That is a very good question. I think this represents the end of Saul Goodman in many respects. As you point out, he makes the call to the vacuum cleaner salesman to take him to the Gene timeline uh, to become Gene. The scene we see of Saul Goodman in the vacuum store, he's literally making the ID uh, for Jimmy, the Nebraska ID, uh, which is the Gene identity. So this is well on the way. We, in fact, see Jimmy packing into his suitcase the same shoebox. This is what he pulls out from behind the Constitution. The same shoebox that he uses ultimately in the Gene timeline to store his uh, most personal private things that aren't related to Gene. So the Band-Aid container that was from his father's store, uh, tape, videotape of him and his Saul Goodman commercial, some family photographs. These are all he has of his prior life, the real evidence he's got left. And that's what we see him putting in this bag that he pulled out from behind the Constitution wall. So this is the end of Saul Goodman. Uh, and I think for that reason, reason it's interesting because when you look at the end of the episode when jimmy's meeting with his ppd officer and his ppd officer says well you want what are you going to do after the, the cell phone store and jimmy goes into this monologue about how i'm going to be a lawyer i'm going to be a better lawyer than i ever was before i'm going to have more clients i'm going to have all this respect well we know how that ends up because we see how it ends up at the beginning of the episode it does not end up that way it ends up with this fall from grace that is shredding papers and tearing his office up like his brother chuck on his way to hiding, oh, uh, 
Yeah, hiding in a in, in with a vacuum cleaner salesman. So this I think is this moment is the end of Saul Goodman. And I think what we're seeing throughout the course of this season so far are a lot of the beginnings of Saul Goodman in terms of him slipping from being a lawyer into the more criminal realm so that when he goes back to being a lawyer, he's going to be doing it with this criminal lawyer mentality that Saul Goodman brings to the table. So we're seeing the end of Saul as we talk about in this episode, Jimmy getting into the more criminal realm. I think that's uh, probably why this particular moment, it's also a moment they didn't show. Uh, it gives them the excuse to use Francesca again and the iconic set. So there are those elements of it as well. Uh, so that's, I think, all in all, a really good scene. And there's some interesting stuff in there, Rob. What, what did you make of Francesca in there? Because Jimmy says to Francesca, he gives her the name of an attorney and says, tell him Jimmy sent you. Did you assume, who did you assume that would be? I have no idea because that we have the line uh, tell him. So uh, you think that that would rule out uh, Kim? Is it possible that it's Howard? It seems possible that it's Howard. I, I mean, the other thing is, right, that Francesca worked for Kim and Jimmy before. So I don't know, even if it was tell, tell them or tell them that instead of him, even if that's what it was, if it wasn't gender specific, then I still think that Francesca would know Kim. So I think it's probably Howard. I mean, the other possibilities are the people from Davis and Maine. Uh, maybe his buddy who we see in this episode. Uh, again, I told you, Rob, on this You podcast, called it. That was a great call. <laughs> yeah, they love this guy. Uh, maybe this guy, Bill, is who he's sending her to. So that's an entire, that's a possibility as well. And it could be somebody we haven't met yet, but it seems likely that it's Howard to me. But I'll tell you what, if you you told me that it was going to be Howard based on the Howard that we saw in this episode. I would say that was unlikely, Rob. I don't think this Howard is going to make it very much longer. Why you feel like that Howard is not long for this world. I, he's at the end of his rope. I, I don't know that he'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he won't. I last. think he'll I'm get just through saying. it. Yeah, I should hope so. I'm pulling for him. Two <laughs> yeah. times therapy a week, though. He's not looking very good. Yeah, so, so, but this is very interesting, uh, what we're talking about here, because, okay, so he's giving uh, Francesca instructions to, okay, uh, talk to the lawyer. He also tells her to, uh, on November 12th, three o'clock on the dot, he's going to be calling her. Do you think that we will, if we have another one of these flash forwards, will we see that conversation? That could be, and that's what I'm wondering, is that going to be part of the gene timeline too? I, I, I'm a little confused by the timing of all this stuff, because keeping in mind that Walt's trip, uh, and this is full breaking bad stuff here, but Walt's trip to New Hampshire occurs in the wintertime. Uh, I don't know exactly when all of this is happening. So it, that seems to be like a check-in. Like I'm going to check in with mm -hmm. you at this time to let you know I cleared my way through. Uh, it makes me wonder if Francesca could come back into the the Gene timeline in some way. Is Jimmy going to find his way back back into Albuquerque? I I don't exactly know what the point of that was. That wasn't clear to me. You're right. There's some intrigue with what was going on that particular date and time, other than maybe just a check-in. And if that's what it was, uh, I you, you wonder if we're going to see that okay. check-in, like you're saying. So refresh my memory on the whole uh, Breaking Bad timeline, because I know you mentioned uh, that we see him then when he goes to uh, which which state is he in? 
He's in Nebraska. You no, know, you know, uh, no, no, no. Walter White. When Walter White oh. goes and he gets the chemo from uh, yeah. Robert Forrester, uh, that so he uh, live live free or die hard. Uh, where where <laughs> where is he? They, uh, well, quote unquote, Granite State, I believe, is the name of that episode, which is New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Uh, yes. And if you track, there are birthdays involved. Yes. Yes. Help you track all that stuff uh, with regard to his like 52nd birthday uh, and things like that. So it, it's probably if you think about where, where you're at before that, that's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 2010. OK, so if that's like if that's September of 2010, um, I guess that could be an early winter in New Hampshire. I mean, that's maybe what we're dealing with is the first snows. Uh, and maybe that's why it looks like winter. I, I really don't well, know. Well, he's that's there for months confused. though, right? Yeah. I mean, it, so that's the other thing is I don't really know all of, And this is a breaking bad podcast yes. at this point, not a better call. Saul but we podcast, can, but we could piece this together because that we're going to see months. I think. Six, yeah, I yeah. think it's six months. Yeah. I think it's like March of 2010, which I think is generally when this, uh, this Jimmy scene is meant to be occurring to like September of 2010, which is ultimately, I think where, where the, the Walter's birthday is that happens in Granite state. And that goes with Felina. So I think breaking bad ends in like September, 2010, the confusing part of this is when you flash to Gene in season one of Better Call Saul, I do think it's snowing outside of his house. Uh, and I think we've seen some elements of different things that I, I'm not sure if we can truly place what month we're in in the Gene timeline. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, if a call is meant to be coming, uh, if he's going to call Francesca in that timeline, if that call would have happened in in that September. That's what I'm saying. Or in that November, I just don't know exactly what year that would have been if it was november 2010 he would have been calling her did we see that already in gene's timeline or not right is the open question for me yes because according to the breaking bad wiki that walter white's birthday is september 7th so yeah that does place it in the fall a lot of the finale of breaking bad is around walter white's uh, 52nd birthday so it's possible also that the call from jimmy to francesca has already happened in the gene timeline and maybe that's uh, brought on the events of the season four premiere where we have somebody from Albuquerque showing up in a taxi. Maybe uh, all these events are connected. That's a good point. Uh, and if that's, if that's the case, if he placed a call and it was somehow connected and traced and got back and then there we end up where we are, uh, that that's a, that's a really good point. I, I don't know. We can, like I said, we can't say, I just don't know that there's been a clear evidence of exactly when the gene timeline is taking place. Other than, like I said, I think there's some snow in that first gene scene. But the other thing is, I just don't know how much time is meant to be passing between all these gene scenes. Has he been there for three months? Has he been there for six months i mean what what's going on there so tbd i guess on that rob yeah now just going back to the shoebox that uh, do you feel like that the shoebox represents uh jimmy's identity and that's why it's such an important possession to saul slash gene I do think so. Yeah. Although it, it clearly has become a repository of all things, uh, Jimmy McGill, including Saul Goodman, because if you'll recall in that first episode of better call Saul in the pilot, in the first gene scene, when he goes home from work and he's drinking alone and it's snowing outside, he goes to the closet and the what's in the box in that point, And I think we see it in the box in this scene in this episode is a videotape that he watches of his Saul Goodman commercials. Mm-hmm. So it's not just his Jimmy, 
Jimmy McGill identity that's in that box. It's his Saul Goodman identity as well. Uh, and I just think that it represents his only real trappings. I mean, I, I assume what we are, what we're seeing there when he fills that suitcase with money and he puts the shoebox in there, that's the only stuff he takes with him. Uh, that's, that's all that goes from, from Albuquerque to Nebraska with Jimmy McGill when he goes to his new life. So he doesn't have a lot of time to unpack Rob at that point, what maybe still is the nail salon or wherever he's living with all of his various menagerie, like his menagerie of suits or whatever you want to call it. And he doesn't have time to load all that up. He's, he's red hot as he puts it. So this is it. This is all he's got. Just a few family pictures, uh, the bandaid container and a videotape of some of his Saul Goodman commercials. So that's it. Don't you think that it was a impractical place to hide this stuff where there is not really any monetary value to this stuff? It doesn't seem like his cash was hidden in a place that was as difficult to uh, access. I mean, this shoebox had to have been put behind the Constitution and then the wall had to have been put up, Antonio. I think that I thought the same thing, Rob. It's very impractical. Again, I think they were wanted the imagery of Jimmy ripping his office apart the way his brother ripped his house apart. And I think that was a huge part of the calculus of why that ended up the way it ended up. I also like the idea that things are hiding in plain sight in the breaking bad world that we didn't necessarily know about since that is an iconic set. And there is that part of it, but you're right about the impracticability of it. The first thing I thought is when does he put the Saul Goodman tape in there? Cause he saw Goodman in this office. Uh, he must've just put it in the box when he built the wall. Um, and if that, that's the case. He never has the opportunity to put anything else in there. So this is a, this is a one and done situation. I mean, if that's how he's got to get the thing out and maybe there's a better way to get it out, but it didn't have time to do it. I don't know, but uh, that's not something where you can go in and, and do yeah. it again. So yeah, it's maybe not very practical. It. Perhaps he with his light fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe he did. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I guess it's also possible that the tapes were not in that shoebox at the time that the shoebox was behind the wall and that the tapes ended up getting put into the shoebox uh, once in Nebraska. Perhaps I can't, I don't, I don't recall from watching the episode this week, if you actually see the tape in there or not, I know uh, you don't see anything really, right. Cause it's sealed up. So we don't really know. So that's a good point. Who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's something we'll see. They love to fill in the blanks, Rob, with seemingly immaterial things. So perhaps that's something we'll see on the show. Okay. So back in the present timeline, we are going to see Jimmy back at uh, CC mobile. And uh, finally he is going to get, a customer to show up after he put up the big sign about how uh, you can get uh, privacy, uh, don't let the man listen to you, and a guy shows up, uh, a, a potential customer for the first time at CC Mobile. Yeah, Jimmy uses his magic fingers, which mm-hmm. is something we've seen him do a few times, right? We've seen him do it, I think, in Uno, the first episode of season one, trying to make calls appear in his voicemail that weren't there. We've seen him do it a couple other times in the course of this series. So he uses his magic fingers when he sees a car in the parking lot. And what do you know? It works. And... Ever the huckster, Rob, Jimmy makes it seem like these things are in high demand. He immediately picks up his phone like he's on a call about selling them so that this guy, when he walks in, can hear Jimmy talking about what a hot item these things are. Uh, He ends that call by pretending that he's already sold these and they're in a stack behind the counter that he puts a sign on. So he is uh, nothing if not a huckster salesman, this Jimmy McGill. And it seemingly works. This guy leaves uh, leaves the business with a bunch of cell phones. What? What business do you think this guy was in, Rob? Waste management. 
<laughs> Albuquerque's the number one waste management. I don't know. It doesn't look like they had the makings of a varsity athlete to me. So uh, I don't know that uh, it's possible. It's possible. It's waste management. He says a contractor. So maybe he's uh, in the wet work. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, so. Maybe Jimmy will rehire him to uh, build the uh, constitution wall. Perhaps uh, if he's if he is a general contractor or maybe he will hire him uh, to break the legs of the kids who uh, mugged him uh, if he's a different kind of contractor. Yeah. Um, Sticking with uh, what's going on uh, with Jimmy and Kim, you know, we get a lot of uh, clarity on the Kim storyline. Last week, we were a little confused about what she was up to. Uh, We see that she has uh, taken on a number of uh, public defendants. Am I using the right terminology? So, <laughs> that works for me. I'm not going to take any quibble with that. Yeah, these are people that are accused of uh, crime that need a public defender. Let's call them public defendants. I'm good with that. Yeah, uh, and she is uh, d- she is uh, representing a uh, a young man, and uh, that he threw a cinder block through a window. That's what it sounds like. Uh, allegedly, Rob. David. Allegedly. Yes. Allegedly. This yes. guy threw a cinder block through a window. Now, David is not one of the kids that uh, beats up Jimmy later on in the episode, right? Correct. He's uh, not. Uh, he's just a... We've not one of the kids David looks before. like him. Uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, these kids, I don't know. They all look the same to me, Rob. Kids. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting so old. If you're under 20, I was at a, I was at UC uh, at the University of Cincinnati on campus the other night, and it was like the first weekend they were back, and all the kids looked exactly the same to me. Uh, they all looked like they were about 14 years old, and I really am. Did they call like you a narc? Man now. They called me a narc. I tried. I was just trying to sell them some cell phones, Rob. I mean, I, I thought every kid wants a cell phone these days. Uh, no. Yeah. Th- I don't know if this was one of the kids. He definitely wasn't one of the kids, uh, but he is uh, he is a kid. And he I think he's a, the kind of kid that uh, the system wants to treat as an adult. Uh, and Kim is looking at him and seeing the kid in him. And I think the system might look at him and see the adult in him. And uh, this is the kind of client that Kim wants to help. We see a couple of clients like this in this episode where Kim can maybe make a difference in someone's life. Uh, certainly not the kind of difference that a Mesa Verde uh, would have for Kim. Uh, she's just going to help a mid-sized regional bank get bigger or whatever. Uh, this is somebody whose life she can directly have an impact on. Uh, we see the kid listening to the conversation that Kim has with their everyone's favorite uh, prosecutor, Rob uh, Bill is here. Prosecutor Bill, he's uh, ready to go. And uh, really, uh, you, re- you really nailed it. Yeah, this. Well, I mean, I th- listen. I listen to the Better Call Saul Insider podcast every week, even though it's probably more heavily. It's like film school. They talk a ton about what it took to get a certain shot and what was their thinking in terms of framing a certain shot. They don't really go into the story so much because they they don't want to spoil anything. So they don't mm-hmm. they don't t- they don't do what we do here, Rob. Where I think we're good companions in that respect. But they um they go a lot into the production of the show, and I just know from listening to that podcast that they really love this guy. Vince Gilligan especially uh, has gone on and on about him. He loved the way he said Omar uh, when Jimmy was talking about how he had a a young paralegal uh, and he was really excited by this. Uh, So we've seen this guy, I think this is three or four times at least. This might be the fifth time we've seen this guy. And at this point he's just part of the Better Call Saul Rogues Gallery. Uh, And a guy, I think any opportunity they get to use the guy, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so they're having a whole negotiation and apparently that uh, a statement was taken from David before he was read his Miranda rights. 
Right. And that, of course, uh, fruit of the poisonous tree, like you can't necessarily use evidence that is obtained uh, illegally or obtained in a way that is impermissible, uh, whether that's with a warrant, without a warrant, if a client's not been Mirandized. Uh, Lots of different reasons why you might not have probable cause to search. But this is a pretty clear one, right? Uh, Everyone knows this from watching TV and legal shows. Uh, Your Miranda rights are part of that. You have to advise them of their Miranda rights when they're being arrested. Uh, Things prior to that, you have to be really... there are arguments that can be made about ways you can use statements and things like that. But look, this guy, David or Bill, Bill doesn't want any part of that. Bill wants to breed Labradoodles, Rob. He doesn't want to fight Kim Wexler. She's, I mean, who knows how she broke her arm? You know, uh, she really bowls him over here. She uses force of will and intimidates him, even though he invented chicken, Rob. <laughs> Yes, he did invent the game of chicken. Uh, but I, I, I mean, Kim uh, gets him down from 18 months of jail time to four months of probation. Yeah, it's great work. Uh, and I guess time served. So it's possible David was already in a county lockup uh, as opposed to actual prison. So it, uh, it it is it's it's something. This is a good deal. And this is such a good deal that I, you, you watch David listen to it and you think he's probably thinking, man, my lawyer's doing a great job, especially considering that a lot of people have a negative impression of public defenders, even though they do great work. She, he's listening to this deal and probably thinking my lawyer is great but once it all goes down uh, he's a jerk about it he's he's grousing about having to like a point like have a parole officer have a probation officer looking into this and kim really reads him the riot act here she's uh, both lawyer and parent at this point i think yeah do you feel like that david uh got the right lesson from this i should hope so i think will he, he be on the straight and narrow I think you will for now, but I think one of the lessons that Kim's going to learn, and I think one of the ways they could show this lesson and teach it to Kim is that a lot of people recidivize that you see the same people and over, over and over again, when you're in these jobs, you see the same families, you see uh, a person that you helped out in one court, uh, six months later shows up again, uh, in your office, having blown the deal that you got them. So that's the sort of thing where she might feel in this moment, like she really made an impact in David's life. And there are probably a lot of instances where she will have done so, but there are probably going to be just as many where she won't have done so. So I think one of the ways we can show that lesson being learned is if we have this kid show back up again, having screwed up and ruined the deal Kim got him and Kim thinking about the futility of the work that she's doing. Uh, I think that's a lesson that she will learn uh, that she has not learned yet, uh, at least that we are going to see that I think could be instructive for her character and her plight throughout the course of this season. So I don't think we should be uh, surprised if we see this character again, for sure. Okay. Jimmy and Kim that night are going to be, you know, the usual dinner in an old movie and uh, Dr. Zhivago is on, but Kim needs to get some Mesa Verde work done. Yeah, she's trying to serve many masters here, right? She's trying to do her public defender work and do her Mesa Verde work. That doesn't leave a lot of room for Ty Ice-T and Jimmy McGill. Dr. Zhivago. And Dr. Zhivago, right. Now, my mom would be very disappointed. She's a big fan of that movie. Have you seen Dr. Zhivago? I have not. Yeah, I saw it when I was far too young to really understand that it was anything other than long. So what I'm interested in, uh, and we, if you, anybody has any feedback to this, you can always email us at bcs at postshowrecaps.com. But Jimmy's sitting there on the couch, right? And he's watching the movie by himself. And the famous Dr. Zhivago theme starts to play, and we hear it in the background. And 
And then he decides that he's going to go run this scam with the cell phones. And I'm just wondering what was it about Dr. Zhivago and sitting on the couch by himself that, that helped him hatch this plan? Or is this something he had already thought about? Uh, and I, I don't have any insight to that effect. What did you, did you think there was anything that specifically changed his mind here? No, nothing. I mean, uh, that was inspired by Dr. Zhivago, but I think that if, Kim isn't giving him attention. I do feel like that that's where uh, his um, uh, mind, which is not occupied by Kim, does become sort of a devil's workshop. Yeah, his id really comes out, right? And his id is sort of this unconscious mind or whatever you want to call it of Jimmy McGill is a, is a bad one. Uh, it is one that uh, is, is preconditioned or suppose it's just uh, naturally there to run riot and put him in negative position. So that seems to be what happens. You're right. When he's not being identified uh, or being occupied by Kim or by anything else, uh, if ultimately what's going on is you let him sit there uh, with his instincts uh, his instincts are going to be um going out the door if kim is the superego then jimmy's it is to be bad and without his superego right like keeping track or moralizing him uh, he's out the door before the credits are even rolling on dr zhivago and he's getting into some late night business here yeah it really is uh, consistent with him that anytime he's just left to himself that's where he really gets into trouble when he is like around the company of people that he likes or he cares about or even people that he could have like sort of small talk with. I think he's okay. But then it's uh, when you leave him alone, that's when he gets into trouble. Yep. And it is, uh, it's, it, I think it's probably long. If you want to do a psychological analysis of Jimmy McGill, these are long deep seated issues that come from what happened with his dad and things we've seen on the show where Jimmy learned to be a con man because a con man was the opposite of his dad and he saw his dad being taken advantage of all the time and he didn't want to be like that. And so when he's left to his own devices and he has to confront like that silence of his own brain, he gets into the con mode and here we are. He doesn't have Chuck to take care of anymore. Chuck was another one who kept him a little centered and kept him guarded. Um, I don't know uh, exactly what that looks like uh, without Chuck and Kim, but I think we're seeing that in this moment and he gets up and he goes out and it goes to CC mobile, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he immediately sells himself the cell phones. It looks like, yeah, I, just to, uh, one last thing uh, with, oh, with, yeah, with, with this idea. Um, you know, I do think that he needs to be a caretaker to sound like he needs to be taken care of. Like when, when he's been at his most functional, he's taking care of Chuck. He's He's taking care of Kim. Uh, you know, he's making he's making her breakfast. He is doing things, buying her dinner. Uh, you know, what are we going to do tonight? Uh, you know, let me get you that uh, Thai iced tea that we like. And it's interesting that where in uh, this world he finds him in, in the gene timeline is anything but that. So it is probably especially torturous for uh, Jimmy slash Saul to end up in this world where he has no one and no connections and is only left with time to himself. Yeah. And he, he looks at the clock and we see the clock in these gene stories all the time. And he's got nothing but menial work to occupy himself. And it is when he goes home in Uno, the, the premiere episode of Better Call Saul, and he's with his with himself that he's laying into the booze, uh, which is not something we see a ton of uh, from Jimmy McGill on this show. Ty Ice Tea's notwithstanding. Uh, and we we ultimately see him doing that in private, drinking and watching commercials of what he used to be. And so I do think you're right 
right about that. Keeping in mind the other thing that's been taken away from him is his law practice. Uh, when he was a caretaker to the senior citizens, that might have been the high point of his legal career. Uh, certainly the high point of what we saw in terms of his productivity on this show uh, was when he was working on the case with Chuck and when he was doing good for the senior citizens that were his clients. I think that's when he felt the most productive and he felt the most connected to an actual uh, line of work. Uh, it, it's telling, I think, that at CC Wireless uh, or mobile, uh, when he saw when we saw him last episode, it wasn't the fact that he got the job that was the problem. It was the fact that he got there and there was nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was bouncing the ball and he was losing himself in his own brain like Jack Torrance. And uh, he pretty soon ends up in a position where he's going to uh, he's going to go commune with his criminal buddy, Ira. Uh, and he's painting the, the outside of the business to, to court a criminal enterprise. So it is when he's left alone with his own devices that he goes to the worst places for sure. Uh, and you're right in the gene world that that is all he's got. So who knows what that really looks like we just haven't really delved too terribly deeply into the gene world yet to find out what all that entails but at least the times we've seen him in private like i said he's hitting the bottle pretty hard and just watching himself on tv is a is a pretty sad sack for sure yeah and we see him head back to that cc mobile and he is going to buy a bunch of these burner phones and head out to the doghouse Heads out to the doghouse. Those dogs do not look good, Rob. I hate yeah. to say it. Uh, I hate to say it. They probably are very good, but they didn't look very good. Yeah. And uh, and the the, the clientele is, uh, you know, I, they don't they look fine to me. I don't know why all these people needed burner phones just because someone has a mohawk doesn't mean they're worried about the government. No. I guess Jimmy's a really good salesman. Yeah. Well, actually, before he stops at the doghouse, he sees uh, some uh, local street toughs and asks them if they need uh, burner phones. They think he's a narc. They think he's a narc. They have reason to think he's a narc outside of his car because he doesn't look like he uh, doesn't look like them. Uh, he does not dress like he's uh, been on the streets that night. He looks like he might be a narc car notwithstanding that location uh, where they are is a location that's seen in Breaking Bad and that montage I talked about earlier from season one, episode six, where Jesse is unloading meth at a slow rate, uh, so slow that they decide to pivot to Tuco to help them distribute their meth. Uh, we see Jesse at that laundromat uh, selling some meth. So uh, that is a, it's a popular location in the Breaking Bad world or something we've seen before at any rate. And these teens uh, are the young Jesse Pinkman types. Uh, I did not think that at the time. I thought they were just local teens. I, you know, hung out at places when I was a teenager and I didn't roll some dude in the street. But uh, these guys are apparently low end as we're going to come to find out. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have a uh, montage of Jimmy in the tracksuit after he realizes oh, I need to not look as much of like a, a professional figure. I need to uh, let people uh, be relatable to me. Need them. To, uh, absolutely. And he still keeps the office, Rob, behind the nail salon. There's apparently just a giant walk in closet at this point. Uh, and he's got all his superhero costumes in there. Yeah, so. Why did he have this tracksuit? Is that from the mall, mall walking? walking? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Because I don't remember that specific one. But we have, I joked on this podcast in the past that Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul's, uh, their their spinoff line is Jimmy action figures. And we have, you know, flamboyant suit Jimmy. And we have normal suit Jimmy. And we have all these different outfits that he wears. We have his, uh, his uh, probation uh, community service costume Jimmy. We have Texas Jimmy. And our mall walker Jimmy is definitely one of those costumes. So I think he's got it in store here. Mm-hmm. 
and he is selling phones. They're selling going like phones. hotcakes. Going like hotcakes or like hot dogs, as, as the case may be. Uh, and it's interesting. I guess the people at this, uh, the doghouse, they don't care about people selling burner phones and or methamphetamine in their parking lot. It's just cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the burner That's, phones, I feel like is less of an issue. Less of an issue, maybe. Uh, still not. You don't want to let vendors in your parking lot generally, I don't think, of anything. Not ideal. But, uh, yeah, burner phones specifically. No soliciting at the doghouse. No soliciting at the doghouse, Rob. Uh, yet th- that is what's going on. And yeah, really moves them. Another obviously uh, better call Saul montage, Rob. Uh, I don't know if lost count for the season, but this is uh, another feather in their cap for sure. I really like the neon with the water shades of taxi driver. Uh, this whole episode had Jackie Brown vibes as well. So mm-hmm. there's good stuff going on there for sure. Yeah. And we know Robert Forrester, though. No Robert Forrester, despite, I mean, hinted at no direct Jackie Brown, but I think some of the sound cues are, or some of the songs are, you know, right in that vein. So it's there for sure. Okay. So Jimmy, after his final four phones get uh, sold to a biker gang, uh, seem like nice guys. Jimmy hits it off with them. So here come those street toughs again, and they are going to mug him. They mug him. They roll him. And he should have seen it coming. He shouldn't have been the last guy in that parking lot. Bad deal for Jimmy McGill here. Uh, bad, bad, bad deal. And he, I can't say he didn't have it coming. I like the way that this, this episode of the montage transitioned from the upbeat, let's find, I'm just going to sling some cell phones to the scary air element. Like he did not have to go back. He had about six phones left. It looked like. And mm. he clearly had done really well. When the biker gang pulled up, he thought to myself, he thought to himself, it seemed like, you know what? I shouldn't be scared of these guys. Like I can get dirty with these guys. I've represented guys like this before. I can make a pitch to them and I can sell these final six phones. Had he not done that, I think he might've gotten out of there just fine, but it was his decision to go darker and to play around in the mud with a, a little bit more of a criminal element that put him in the position that he was in. He didn't exercise uh, the best judgment. I think he pushed himself a little too far. I do wonder to what extent this Jimmy McGill is, is seeking that out a little bit, a little bit of punishment or perhaps seeking out the edge uh, because of what he's done to feel alive uh, because of what he's done with Chuck. Uh, Uh, in causing Chuck to take his own life. Um, Maybe Jimmy feels at the end of the day that he was responsible for that and wants a little punishment. I'm not saying he wanted to be jumped, but I do think he's putting himself in an edgier position here. And this is what happens sometimes when you push it too far. Uh, And we see that play out with these kids. So I think Jimmy is purposely putting himself in harm's way and he ends up in harm's way and he ends up harmed. So not a great look for Jimmy. And the, the best thing about this is, I think he realizes it because he goes back to Kim and I do think he earnestly responds that he's ready to go talk to a therapist. That's a really interesting thought about uh, Jimmy getting into this situation as a way to, to, uh, you know, literally beat himself up. Yeah. I I mean, that's, I think that's a huge, he probably feels like he deserves it. And if nothing else, I think he's seeking an edge for sure. He's seeking a rush. And I think that goes hand in hand with what he does when he's left to his own devices. I think he looks to get that edge or he looks to get a grift going. And I think he feels most alive when he's doing that. And here's a guy who's had every reason to not feel very alive and to not feel very happy in the world. And I think that's what he realizes ultimately when he gets beaten up is, 
he, he talks about in that next scene, right? He says like in the old me in the old days, like those guys would have, would have stayed away from me. They would have known mm-hmm. not to come after me. Uh, and Ken's like, ah, how would they have known not to roll you? And Jimmy's like, I guess back then I was one of them, you know? And there is that self analysis that's going on here. And that is when Jimmy says like, you know what? I think I'm going to call that therapist the next day. And I truly think he would have Rob were it not for everything that happens uh, with Howard in the bathroom. I think Jimmy might've actually made that call, but in this moment, I think he is feeling a lot of guilt over the actions that he took. And he is realizing that he's putting himself in dangerous positions that he doesn't need to be in, in part because he's not really right at this point. He's not making the best decisions for himself for all the reasons we've talked about. So he ends up in a bad spot as a result of that. Uh, Kim seems to buy the mugging story without asking like, like other than other than like why were you at the doghouse? She doesn't even really get into the details of anything other than he was at the doghouse. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't really seem to to ask. I again, this is the kid yeah. who sometimes doesn't ask questions when she knows the answers already. Yeah, I think he could sort of just spin it that oh, I went to go get some something to eat. I was working late, and then uh, I shouldn't have been there that late at night. But um, no, she doesn't have a ton of questions. No, and we've seen a Kim in the past who who knows the answers already and therefore doesn't ask the questions. And I didn't sense that that was what was going on in this scene, that she might have known that he was up to something nefarious. But it seems like one of the things in their relationship that goes on is that she just doesn't even ask because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to hear some things that she might hear. So there are some communication issues between the two of them. He's certainly not being completely honest with her in this moment. And he's been guilty. He was guilty last week when he told her a lie about taking the job. Now he's lying about actually having the job and, and he puts himself in a position where he gets beaten up and, and it's because of the actual thing he was doing. Uh, if Kim knew the truth, that would be a major problem between the two of them. So he's certainly telling her a lie by proxy, if nothing else here. See, and I thought it was a lie, too, that he was going to go see the therapist in this conversation. But uh, that is uh, interesting also that you feel like he was telling the truth and it's not until he sees Howard later that he decides uh, thinks better of it. Yeah, because he, you know, and we'll get into that, but one of the things Howard mentions is that Howard's already in therapy. Yeah. I think Jimmy takes a look at him and says, boy, if that's what therapy two times a week <laughs> does to you, I want no part of this and throws the, throws the number in the toilet at that point. So yeah, I think he was actually, I think he was on the level because the next thing we see him doing, right. Is he goes in uh, an, another great montage. We already watched the paint dry, Rob. Shouldn't we see it coming down? Uh, he cleans the windows off at the shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's uh, that, that scene is so great. So nice. We needed to see it twice. But uh, Jimmy is uh, yeah. Jimmy takes the paint down. So I do think that he's maybe interested in pivoting, pivoting away a little bit from uh, dipping his toe into these criminal waters because the water was a little too hot for him. So I think you might have been a little bit earnest about his therapy. But yeah, he has to he still has to go to court for his PPD. So he's in a position where he's he's having to live through a lot of the reality of his mistakes on a daily basis. And that can't be easy either. He probably does need therapy on top of everything else. But seeing Howard in that that state boy what about patrick fabian here rob how, how poor howard mm-hmm. yeah no he's in a really uh rough spot here and uh he says that it's just insomnia 
Just insomnia. Like somebody get this guy something like this is bad deal. But uh, I don't know, man. This is not the Howard Hamlin we've seen. Like the Howard Hamlin we've seen is uh, his his T's are crossed. His eyes are dotted. He's there perfectly straight and tie, perfectly coiffed hair like he is ready and he's always full of energy. And this is this Howard is a wreck like this. You know, I, I joked earlier when I said like he doesn't look long for this world, but I don't know where this ends except for in a very bad place with Howard. He's going to have have to hit the bottom and hope he doesn't hurt something when he does and hope he bounces back so he clearly is in this place don't you agree that he's in this place because of what jimmy put him in like when jimmy said it's your cross to bear like he feels responsible for chuck oh yeah absolutely and it's interesting that howard is uh, really taking this harder than at least outwardly than uh, than jimmy is and and jimmy is the one who knows the truth Right. And I, I'm sure you can make an argument that maybe Jimmy is suffering more than Howard and we're not just we're just not seeing it that Howard is wearing it. And really, it's, it's just so present there and the Jimmy sickness is much more latent and it's so bad that he can't even confront it. Uh, and at least Howard is struggling with confronting it. Uh, I don't know that you couldn't put a more stark image than put these two in a, a room by themselves and compare the two. And it's Jimmy trying to give Howard advice. But Jimmy does ask. He says, uh, may I ask uh, you what is is it that's uh, that's eating you uh, Jimmy you know the answer to this like why he's asking that because I think he probably knows he should be feeling this way too or isn't this a proper response or did I do this to you and yeah that's exactly what it is Howard won't go into it but that's of course what it is mm-hmm. yeah and uh, he mentions as you brought up earlier about the idea of that he's seeing the therapist uh, twice a week and Jimmy is going to take that phone number from Kim and rip it up and throw it in the toilet. A little dramatic. <laughs> a little dramatic. A little, a little dramatic. Could have gone in the pocket. Could have stayed in the pocket. Didn't know. To, didn't need to go right in the toilet. Like this is uh, a very Jimmy's interested in metaphor. I think uh, so. This is very on the nose for sure. Right and right down the toilet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Jimmy's also going to have a meeting with his PO. Am I using the right terminology there? Yeah, close enough. We can do with that. I'm sure I don't I think different states are going to use different things, but he's on, you know, he's on a pre-sentence or a pre-conviction disposition is ultimately he didn't end up he didn't end up becoming a felon or anything like that. He's trying to get this out and dealt with before it really will go on to his record. So that's what he's dealing with is some sort of diversion. Uh and he's dealing with his diversion officer, call it a PO, call it what you will, but this is the guy who Jimmy has to meet with regularly it sounds like once a month and jimmy has to go over all the specifics of i'm I'm on the straight and narrow and that includes finding gainful employment that includes having a plan uh, that includes showing proof of that employment making sure he's completed his community service which he already did so it's uh, this is the guy who tracks all of that and yeah the guy is interested rob uh, even though jimmy is tracking it to the hour when jimmy's getting his law license back he's interested what what jimmy's going to do after the cell phone job uh and this is a very uh, this is a good scene for bob odenkirk uh what does he say here he says that he's interested in in, in being a better lawyer like we talked about earlier mm-hmm. yeah he wants to be uh the best lawyer uh more clients and uh and and more money um i just feel like that this was an uh, interesting place to end the episode 
Yeah, it was. But again, think about how the episode began. And I do think that that's what we're dealing with is those two things juxtaposed against each other in terms of we saw, you know, we see the episode end with Jimmy talking about the kind of lawyer he wants to be and how it's going to be bigger and better. And he and Kim are going to ride off into the sunset with Wexler McGill and it's all going to be great. And we saw at the beginning of the episode exactly how wrong all of that is. Ultimately, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, maybe he and Kim are going to have another uh, false dawn, uh, but it's not going to end completely well because we know where it goes from the beginning of the episode. So I think the end is because of the beginning. But you're right; it is a little bit of a more well, of a down I just thought we that. knew where it was going to go already. So I, I don't really look at this as a, oh, but this is the beginning of Jimmy's law career because it's it's not the beginning of his law career. Right. It's not. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the beginning of like the new version of Jimmy McGill or mm-hmm. him articulating that he's interested in that juxtaposed with what we know, how it ends up. So yeah, it's not the beginning. I mean, for all we know, uh, and it will be interesting to see if we, if we do a time jump this season or, or how we cover the rest of that nine months, 24 days. But, uh, but it, for all we know, by the end of this season, um, he could be using the Saul Goodman name. We talked about that on our last podcast and not be a lawyer. Or for all we know, when he gets his law license back, he will begin practicing law, not as Jimmy McGill again, but as Saul, McG- or Saul Goodman. So we don't even know if he's ever going to be Jimmy McGill attorney at law again. It could just be Saul Goodman the minute he comes back. Mm-hmm. Although I do think that that would still be difficult to work in the Kim side of the storyline, because as uh, Jimmy is being pulled more towards the dark side. Kim is seemingly uh, pulled further away from the dark side where uh, she is uh, wanting to be the most benevolent lawyer there is. Yeah. And that's uh, something again, where I think that there are no, there are, there are shades. These, these are these series breaking bad and better call Saul are about shades of gray and shades of color. And I think we're going to see, you can try to be the most benevolent lawyer in the world, Kim, but it's not going to end up that way. Um, we got the first scene. We talked about what happens with David. Uh, we saw another scene with Kim in this episode where she goes to her client's house. Uh, this client didn't want to go to court. Uh, this client, Denise didn't want to go to jail. So she didn't want to go to court sounded like she maybe had a marijuana possession charge um under two ounces uh that limit seems pretty high for these other street drugs so mm-hmm. it's probably weed uh and it just shows you like the the i think that was a maybe a silent statement on uh the 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 war on drugs at least this room this woman's life was going to be ruined over something that's becoming increasingly more legal across the united states but she didn't even want to go to court because she was so terrified over the criminality of what she got into because of of it. Uh, and I think Kim is trying to say like, I can help you. This doesn't have to define you. And she, I think she makes a really good sell with Denise. Denise ends up leaving the house and going with Kim. But in the interim, Rob, Kim doesn't necessarily do the best thing for her future. Uh, she's ignoring calls from Mesa Verde. And in fact, when she answers, it doesn't go well. No, it doesn't. Uh, she ends up hanging up on Paige. Uh, Paige is saying like, hey, Kim, we need you. She's like, I can't talk right now. I mean, uh, the woman, uh, Denise, uh, she doesn't even want to go to the court case. And Kim is hanging up on Paige uh, to take Denise to said court case. Right. Right. 
<laughs> it's not good. Not good at all. And we've talked about Kim's simmering discontent with Mesa Verde. We saw her just disappear into her own brain when Kevin Wachtel was showing off the models and talking about the expansion plans. But I think it's never been more clear how disinterested in Mesa Verde she is than when she does hang up on uh, Kieran Page here. And it's not good. Uh, it isn't good. And great work by the actress who plays Page in the next scene with Kim and Page. Uh, because Paige is none too pleased about this. And she lays down the law pretty clearly. Like this is a, you know, this is a thing. It happened. We got If it happens again, we have a very big problem and it, it, it can't happen again, Kim. And I think, I think Rob, we would probably agree. It's going to happen again. Oh, certainly. Now, yeah. my question about Mesa Verde is uh, what's going on with Kevin? In terms of what, he, where, what where is blown? he? Uh, so like something is up with Kevin. Okay, so you think he might be involved in some criminal enterprise? Is that I, what you're saying? I don't know if it's that, but I feel like that at some point the other shoe is going to drop here at Mesa Verde and something is off with Kevin where Kim said, oh, you know, please, you know, apologize to Kevin for me. And she's like, well, Kevin's not around today. Like, there's just he was acting so odd earlier in the season. Something is up with him. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. It is. It's possible that he that his relationship with Kim is sort of the I think maybe the if you want to say it's the representative relationship or it's the it's the example that it's based on. You could say that because he he was the sell. He was who needed to be sold. And so if you're going good with Kevin, if Kevin's happy, then everybody's happy. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So I think that's a part of it with with Kevin. I think he's meant to represent the relationship as a whole. So when it's good with him, you know, he's buying you dinner and he's talking you up and he's telling his buddies on the golf course to come use your services when it's going only okay with him then you're not on the same page and it feels weird <laughs> on the same page not on the same page mm-hmm. sorry about that and it feels weird uh and you're distant and something doesn't feel right and then when you're going bad you don't even get to talk to him yeah he doesn't even want it's to like see a good you. cop bad cop Yes, it's a good cop, bad cop, or sticking a carrot. And Kevin is, yeah, Kevin's the good cop and Paige is the bad cop. And I think that's a huge part of it. Kevin Kevin would love to see you, Kim. Uh, and he would love to give you the opportunity to continue to make the sale here. But you're screwed up. You, you can't even get past me at this point. You're sideways with Kevin and you're going to have to make this right. He's not going to make the time to listen to your excuses. He's on too this. busy looking at models of banks. Exactly. Uh, and potentially uh, doing something else uh, untoward, a criminal that we'll find out later. But at least he's too busy to talk to the Kim Wexlers of the world when Kim was his girl. I mean, Kim was uh, his uh, his his favorite. And so I think that's a that's a huge part of the role Kevin plays in this story is when you're going good with Kevin. He's there and he's gregarious and he's buying you meals and he's taking looking after you and he's sending his friends to you for business. When you're going bad with Kevin, he won't even talk to you. And I think that's a big part of what's happened. If Kim's getting frozen out for sure. Okay. Uh, the other half of this story has to do with Mike setting up these meetings to uh, bring in contractors to build the super lab. 
Yeah. And, you know, I normally get a little bit, uh, I grow a little weary sometimes of the just standard Mike storylines when they come up, even though they're often the best part of the show. A lot of times it's just Mike doing Mike things. I, I really like this one. This was fun. I don't know why. It was I had a lot of fun. I, I laughed a lot at the first guy they bring in. He's such a clown, like prancing around that lab and shooting his little laser everywhere. Um, that's, this is the job that Gus talked about. At least it seems like it that Gus talked about last episode, right? Where he said, I, I have, I need, I need you to do a thing for me. I need you to do a job for me. It sounded like the job he needs Mike to do is organize and find the help, find the person who's going to build the super lab. Um, we now know that this project will take a period of years. It seems like, which explains, I think why the lab was not currently in use when we first encounter it in breaking bad outside of the fact that we hadn't found the right chemist to go into that lab. Um, it wasn't ready. I don't think so. Here we are. We're getting it ready. Gus has his plan. His plan all along was this longer plan. And he, it, it seems like he was looking to put in and invest in this lab for a very long time. And we're seeing now exactly what that looks like. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there had been maybe some mystery about, you know, how did this lab get built underneath this laundromat? To me, it was not the most interesting mystery in the, Breaking Bad universe. It's a little bit to me, it feels like sort of like at the episode, uh, the end of episode two of the uh, Star Wars prequels where you sort of find out, oh, the Emperor has big plans for this thing called the Death Star. How how, it's going to take a long time to build, though. (laughs) <laughs> right but uh, I, I think it might pay off later if you're if you're tracking this right yeah and the rebels will eventually blow it up so this is great the uh along with the lab this is uh but this is a good i mean this we're seeing a lot of breaking bad locations and breaking bad sets and the super lab is a major iconic breaking bad location some of the best stuff in breaking bad occurs in that lab and i i like seeing the genesis of it and yeah they probably felt like they had to do some heavy lifting to explain how it got built under this thing. And that was probably a thing where they, they feel like they can close these loops with better call Saul. Like, Hey, we can fill that blank in. People always ask during breaking bed, how did X happen? We can fill that blank in. We can talk about, you know, we can show when Jimmy first met Francesca, like we can bring these things into the universe. And those are the sorts of things we can write about. So it makes sense that that Gus Fring would have been seeking to build this thing. Uh, the lab, the laundry was a great cover for the lab, as we know. So the chemicals and everything associated with that, it was it was really great cover. Uh, so so great that it was hard for them to even know that it was there, even though it was in plain sight at times. So this is all good stuff. And I just had a lot of fun with seeing how it all played out. I like the German guy that we brought into mm-hmm. this mix. Uh, so that, that also worked. I also really liked how this played out with the first guy, right? Because He's prancing around. He's super confident. He takes about three minutes on his computer and with his uh, laser measurement. And he says like, oh, no problem. Uh, Seven months, maybe even six months. And Mike is like, oh, I don't know about that. Mike doesn't seem Mm -hmm. too sure about this, does he? He doesn't seem too sure. Well, the two guys that they brought in were really uh, complete opposites in terms of how they handled trying to uh, get the job. One guy felt like it was going to be super easy. The other guy was talking about how hard it was going to be and Gus seemed uh, you know far more interested in the person who uh, seemed to be the realist the pessimist yeah 
the guy who was methodical, right? The guy who was using paper and pencil and the guy who was going about the decisions uh, or the evaluations in a very practiced and reasonable old school methodical way. Uh, that methodical nature is something I think that impressed him about Mike. I think that's one of the reasons he feels good about Mike and why he has taken to him so quickly and why he trusts him and why he, why, how he knows he can use Mike is Mike is so detail oriented and he's so good at what he does. I think that's a huge part of what draws Gus to Walter later is that Walter is that way in terms of his cook. Uh, everything has to be inch perfect in terms of the, that's why everything is so pure with the work Walter does. So I think that's something that for a guy who's fastidious like Gus Fring, and who is practiced and who is very specific and reasonable uh, in terms of the decisions that he makes uh, not being something that he can't achieve or he has a very specific plan and way he goes about things. I think he respects that. And so I think this, uh, the first guy flops at the job audition probably doesn't help that he's bragging about other jobs. He did uh-huh. because it makes you wonder what's he going to do after yeah. this job. Is he going to tell somebody he built a lab underneath a laundry somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. And you get the impression that Gus was watching the whole time. Right. That's right? the because, move where he yeah. just is like, if, if he likes the guy, he'll walk in. If not, then uh, Mike is just uh, takes him back where he found him. Yeah. He gets the phone. Mike gets the phone call from Gus and Mike is like, yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought too. You know? Yeah. I figured that. And then Mike's gone. It's like, but you know, back to Denver in the back of a van with a bag on your head the whole time. So yeah, that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they went to great lengths to disguise uh, where this would be located, uh, meeting these people in Denver and then going to Albuquerque from there. Uh, they could have driven six hours in any direction or however long it takes. I don't even know how long that drive is, but it could have been in one, any, any direction. They could be anywhere in the country at that point. So I like that idea. Uh, and I think that worked out really well. And uh, we seem to have, found our lab builder do you think we, we talked about what's going on with bill the prosecutor the guy who invented chicken uh gus probably wants to have a word with him about inventing chicken by the way uh, but uh this do you think that we're going to see the lab guy uh relatively soon here again but what's to see the construction of the lab i guess i mean are there going to be difficulties Look, they have a lot of, uh, they have five more episodes to fill this season, Rob, and then untold number of seasons to fill after this. I assume there will be. Uh, I I feel like that we've got to get back to focus to uh, Nacho and what's going on there and Hector and the hospital and the Salamancas. Like, I feel like that this is a little bit of a diversion. Uh, I can't imagine that the super lab construction over Mike overseeing it for Gus is going to be you know, a major area we're going to focus the plot into. I don't think so either, but I do think we're going to see this guy again. Uh, and maybe not this season, but I just feel like when they find a person that they like, they find a way to use them again. So I think that is a driving force behind the creative decisions that they make. I think they think to themselves, Hey, if we, if we, how could we use that guy again? What's a way we could work this story to put, to set a scene at the super lab? What could we do that is uh, important? Maybe he takes Gail on a tour. Maybe Gail gives him some advice and maybe that's another Gail scene. And another, the German guy is there at that point. Uh, maybe there are those kinds of things. Uh, I, I don't know the answer, but I feel like we're going to see this guy again, probably multiple times. Yeah. I did like when Mike was, asking the uh, first guy do you need to relieve yourself <laughs> do you need to go to the bathroom is are that you the, sure 
I, I want you to do this with your children, Rob. Use the mic voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you ask them if they have to go to the bathroom. Yep. Please use the mic voice. But then right as that, Mike was like, do you want water? Like, uh, what are you testing him? <laughs> yeah, he's torturing him. Yeah, exactly. It's just a little quiet form of torture. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, and then if you don't want it, I'm just going to pour it into another glass over and over again. <laughs> this whole trip, like in the Goonies. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So that's possible. We could do that. Uh, Mike's probably upset that he's in the back of this van. Uh, there's a lot of the good baseball games going on probably around this time. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, you could put in uh, maybe an earbud and listen to them. That's true. Transistor radio. But the the regional broadcast might tip off the uh, person in the van where they are. He's got to wear headphones. With that. Yeah, you got to be real careful that they don't play too loud. Uh, so you got to be real careful with that for sure. So I, 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 overall, I thought this was, I, I like I said, just generally, I enjoyed the story of the lab just because I thought it was fun. It was a fun story. I like the the way that, that Gus plotted this out. I like the idea that he's watching all the time and that he shows up and shows his face when, when he feels confident. He trusts you. He uses his real name. I, I like all that. I thought this was, this was good. Um, and I didn't really know ultimately like i said why we are not spending time with other stuff uh with mike but i think this is ultimately this is this is better call saul we have jim and kimmy jimmy and kim stuff we have stuff going on with kim on her own we have stuff going on with jimmy on his own we have him running some cons and we have mike and gus working together to tie it to the breaking bad universe and the cherry on top this week rob was the scene from the breaking bad universe itself so good stuff from better call saul at the very least what 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 feedback do we have or do you have anything else about this episode that you want to hit no no nothing else i mean very exciting to have the entry point into the uh into the breaking bad uh universe so johnny severa wrote in uh, bcs at posterrecaps.com uh so with all the naysayers about this season so far do you think that they were satisfied opening up with a time jump into a breaking bad was that enough red meat to throw at people uh complaining about the slow pace of season four I'd like to hear uh, from from people who felt that the season is too slow. Is this the kind of stuff you want? Like, because ultimately this scene doesn't really advance the Breaking Bad plot at all. Uh, we do have that thing dangling uh, with the phone call in November, and maybe, maybe that's part of something that becomes something. But it really doesn't advance the Breaking Bad plot at all. We don't know any more about the Breaking Bad world other than we saw Jimmy's escape scene and we saw where he kept the box. Uh, we don't really much know much else, but it's fun. Like it's 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 a little reward. It's a cherry. It's it's sweet uh, and. So so I wonder if that's what people want. Is is this the kind of thing people want or do they want stuff in the Breaking Bad world that actually Ill, like informs the story more? Because this was just a, like a deleted scene. It wasn't something that really informed the story more. So I'm curious if it was enough uh, for those people. I'm not one of those naysayers completely. So I, I don't need scenes like this, generally speaking, uh, if they're just fun. I want to see things that change the scope of the show. And I am excited that the show is willing to go there now because I feel like that represents presents enough of a sea change that this was a big scene for me for sure i think that it doesn't necessarily need to be that people want to see scenes from the breaking bad timeline but i think that you know you have these characters that you're bringing in uh like mike and gus and and saul but i i think that the frustration has been that there is not a ton of interaction uh, specifically between jimmy and uh, some of the figures from the underworld uh to date and here we are uh in season four 
of this show. So I think that if uh, Jimmy was more involved in uh, the uh, criminal enterprise and further along on that progression into the uh, Saul Goodman world, I feel like that, you know, the Breaking Bad uh, style pacing I think would be just as appreciated as actual scenes from Breaking Bad. Yeah, I'm wondering in that regard, do you think when we've talked in the past about Jimmy maybe taking stuff from the vet or being involved with the vet more, do you think that Jimmy is going to seek some kind of revenge on those kids who rolled him? Uh is he vindictive like that? I don't know. I mean, in terms of people that have wronged him in the past, have we seen him strike back at people just for the sake of being vindictive? No, uh, I don't think so. Not not that I can really think of. I mean, the uh, the thing that is unspoken, and I don't want to spoil too much of Breaking Bad, even though at this point the show is going to start doing it on its own and continues to do it. But the, he's got the, the broken nose uh, or the bandage on his nose in this Breaking Bad scene, and we know that's from a confrontation with Pinkman. Uh, but uh-huh. I don't think he, he's going to really seek retribution. I mean, Jimmy's not a mafia don. Uh, he's a, he's an underworld connected criminal lawyer. And so I don't know, but that doesn't, that's not to say that he didn't do that in this timeline when he's at his lowest ebb and, and he's at some of his most hateful stuff. Uh, he exacted revenge on the Sklar brothers uh, in the episode in previous seasons when he did the slip and fall at their store and he got money out of them and he got his guitar. But again, those guys were trying to rip him off and he didn't exert physical harm on them. He just got his money. He got the money he thought he had coming plus a nice signed guitar. So I've not seen the Jimmy McGill who exacts revenge on someone by hurting them physically. But if you ask me what it might look like uh, in a Jimmy McGill world uh, where that would happen, I'd say, well, uh, Chuck's gone. Jimmy feels responsible. He's uh, not got anything to occupy his time and he feels like an idiot because he screwed something up. He might take that out on those guys. So I don't know, man, like I don't think he's going to get his money back, but I certainly am interested to see what these writers think about this character and where he's at right now. Because I think this will be a litmus test. Uh, will he try to exact some sort of revenge on these kids or not? Okay. Uh, Antonio, uh, we asked for feedback from the listeners uh, last week. We have a email from Andrew who said uh, he wants to chime in on the pace of the story for the show. Okay. Uh, when the show was announced, he figured the show would just be Saul Goodman and a bunch of non-Breaking Bad related wacky cases that he got involved in. Uh, I feel like there's a story to be told post Jimmy turning into Saul. You could easily get a couple of seasons of good stuff with there as, uh, with him as Saul Goodman. We could see what madcap cases he is working on besides the Breaking Bad stuff uh, that has already been shown. And of course, we can get a couple seasons of post Breaking Bad Saul and is morphing into Gene and maybe even some straight up Gene stuff too. the show doesn't have to crawl at a glacier pace to be the beginning of Breaking Bad. There are plenty of more stories to be told from all points of his life. Anyway, I love the show as is too. And of course, the podcast. Uh, thank you, Andrew. So I guess Andrew wants to see more of Saul Good men uh going on uh, maybe like case of the week type stuff and i i get that and i think that's something that the creative team has struggled with in terms of making this show in, in from the initial concept on i think there are at times had been talk of a half hour sitcom uh and more a comedic show yeah. and and i mean and, i think that's what, what the original pitch was for this show 
Right. And I don't know to what extent that was what it was sold on or how that morphed, but that has been part of the discussion for sure on this show uh, is that is that the creative team at least conceptualized that kind of show. And in that show, I think that a story of the week show with Saul Goodman was more along the lines of what they were looking into. When they sat down and thought about it, I think they really thought like we could get into what, what makes this guy tick? How did he become the guy that he is? And if we're going to tell that story, isn't that more dramatic? Isn't he the sad clown at that point? Isn't he Pagliacci? Like, isn't he the guy that cracks wise or, or is making entertaining others when he's carrying around a lot of his own sadness? Like, isn't that what's happening? So I think they really talked about a lot of those things that, that was, that was going on. And, and I think that ultimately, Ultimately, this is where they landed. But I think what you do see, especially in season one of this show, is a lot of that original premise is a lot of the silly case of the week type stuff or some of the stuff where you would see the the lawyer, the, the legal work of Saul Goodman. That wasn't criminal per se. That was just a goofy stuff like the toilet guy or like the case with the Kettleman's just stuff where he was working with goofy, quirky clients that uh, that, you know, he would, he would make jokes about and that we would get material out of. Uh, but then I think they found a show where you could get to a lot more of a darker world. You could really bring Gus into the mix. You could bring Mike into the mix and bring the darkness in, in that story. And I think we probably talked a ton on this podcast in season one about how we like that element of the show more. Mm-hmm. what's going on with Mike and the criminal enterprise and wanting to see more of the underworld in Albuquerque. We like that part of the show more. And I think that was, a, that was early feedback on better call Saul from everybody uh, is that that's the part of the show they liked more. I think as the show went on, that changed a little bit. And I think it, it really, uh, we we've talked about this, but it, it changes a lot by the, uh, by the apex of chicanery, by the, the moment where it's the episode with Jimmy and Chuck and you don't care about any criminal stuff. This is a great drama that they've built, but it took them multiple seasons to build that up. So I think the, the criminal stuff is a lot more, uh, it's, it's a lot more instantly rewarding and it's a lot more fun moment to moment. The Jimmy stuff takes a lot longer to build. And I think this show is constantly figuring out a way to manage both of those things. And so I think they'll continue to do that. I do agree with what Andrew is saying in terms of, I think there is legs uh, in the show for a couple seasons of early Saul Goodman attorney at law stuff. They can continue to do that without rushing us to breaking bad. I'm not sure they are going to do that, but I think they could do it. Uh, I think their foot is already pretty heavily on the accelerator right now though. So I think we'll end up getting probably a time jump at some point. Antonio, what about uh, the email from Joshua? Yeah, this email from Joshua Gordon. Uh, Josh says, hey, guys, so I know you're probably going to talk about uh, talk to death about our opener, how we are officially hey. now in the Breaking Bad timeline. Yeah. Hey, how does he know? You've been listening, Josh. Who's listening, Rob? Who's is, is Josh the man here <laughs> uh, listening in on what we're doing? Uh, Josh says, even if it was just for five minutes and how we are moving at a fast pace now. So do you think that uh, the opener is supposed to be representative of Jimmy's beat down at the hot dog stand later on in the episode that no matter how hard he tries, he can't make it as a bad guy, a wolf, because there are always better bad guys out there who could outsmart him and guys. He fears more Walter white and the mugger kids, etc. etc. So what do you think about this, Rob? Is that what this scene is trying to do? Show that Jimmy McGill is constantly going to be on the other end of this when the heat gets too hot. 
I didn't have that same interpretation. I think that uh, he the takeaway he had was that, no, I I wish that there was a way I could have signaled to those guys that I'm a bad guy, too. I'm not somebody that's an easy mark that you can uh, just come and knock off that I need to come up with some way to uh, make these people know there are repercussions for messing with me. Yeah. And I think that's funny because we, we talked about if you want to say that, like, does that mean he's going to try to get his name out there? Is he going to exact revenge on these guys? Uh, or is it something just generally he needs to buck up a little bit uh, and show his, show his back a little, like to show these guys who he really is. And I think that's an open question, but at the end of the day, I think Josh is right that Jimmy is not the apex predator of this show. He's not even near the top of the food chain when it comes to criminals. He, he's a talker, Jimmy McGill. Uh, he does his work in a different way, but he's not a brute. And at the end of the day he can talk you out of your wallet but he's not going to talk you into the grave and there are plenty of people on this show who will put you in a grave he's not one of them at least that we've seen he makes he makes those kinds of things as a suggestion send him to belize uh, he talks about maybe let him go wouldn't it be easier just to take care of badger he doesn't ultimately do it he's just the guy who talks about it uh, he doesn't even seem to watch it happen so i'm not sure uh, where this where this goes and i think we're reminded of that with this scene if nothing else for sure okay all right, Rob, I want to go to one more here from Tammy Scott. And Tammy says, hi, Rob and Antonio. Love the podcast. Thank you, Tammy. Uh, Tammy says, I think Kim is dealing with Chuck's death by doing everything she can to make Mesa Verde fire her. Working for them reminds her of Chuck, and she doesn't think she deserves that job. Maybe she's punishing herself by working with low-life criminals. I think she wants to rebuild her law career by starting at the bottom and doing everything herself with no help from Jimmy. What do you think about that, Rob? What's the agency in what Kim's doing? Is this just oversight because she's not focused? Or is this the sort of thing we were talking about earlier with Jimmy, where she's sort of willfully putting herself in a position where this is happening? I think that that is possible, but I... I to use the word agency, I think that that would mean that she is conscious of what she is doing and the reasons why. And I don't think that the show has given us that where it seems like that Kim is uh, looking for something, but I don't really know if she has a great sense of what it is. That's a good point. And I don't know. I don't know if that's it either. I think that. I think her accident is still also weighing on her. I think Tammy is right to point out that Kim is a, is a, is a third party in this uh, in this issue where Howard is carrying around a lot of guilt about Chuck and Jimmy is carrying around whatever he's carrying around about Chuck, but Kim is carrying around a lot of guilt about Chuck. And we know that that was an issue between her and Paige in the past. The most we've ever seen problems between Kim and Paige in the past before this week is when Paige was mocking Chuck loosely and Kim was feeling so guilty about that that later on she blew up at page and slammed that rule book down in front of her that's the most we've ever seen a problem between kim and mesa verde and it had everything to do with chuck so it makes sense that we would continue that through line and say these other problems that kim is having with mesa verde also have to do with chuck but i think more generally 
Kim is carrying around a lot of problems because of her accident, because she felt the need to prove herself. I do think she was sticking her neck out too much because she felt weird about what was going on with Jimmy and because she felt guilty about Chuck. All of that is wrapped up in one ball. I think is Kim, Kim is a lot more complicated than just because of A, B. I think there are a lot more factors that go into Kim, even including uh, her coming from the small town and feeling the need to prove herself in the way that she articulated when she was interviewing with Schweikert and Coakley. So there are a lot, there's a lot that goes into Kim, uh, the, the not a, a lot more than just she's feeling guilty about Chuck, so she's trying to get fired. I think it's a lot more complex than that, but I think that's part of it. I think that's a good observation that she's still carrying a lot of that around for sure. I think it's another good observation that Mesa Verde is in part hers because of what they did to Chuck, because of Jimmy's great lie, because of the forgery. And I think Kim probably does feel guilty on some level about that. She knew about it, and she knew that that was part of the situation. She knew who she was in bed with. She knew who Jimmy McGill is. So she has to be feeling pretty guilty about that. And if that means that she feels guilty or doesn't is disinterested in Mesa Verde in general, I buy it. If that means that she's going to go off and try to prove herself on her own without Howard, without Jimmy or anyone else, I buy it. So more to come for sure on, on, on Kim's front. All right. Antonio, anything else about this week's better call Saul at the halfway mark? No, I, I, I mean, five tenths of the way through Rob. And, uh, I, I really hope by the end of this season, we see another gene scene. And if it's this, uh, November phone call, if I think it was cold when Jimmy was walking away from the cab, when Gene was walking away from that cab in the last scene. So maybe not much time has passed and maybe we could still be in that November range. That would be great. Um, but otherwise, uh, I really like the idea that we could get a breaking bad scene at any point. Now, this is a good move for the show and the idea that we could continue to fill in some blanks uh, and eventually put us in a position where we didn't realize it. And like I said, a whole episode occurs in that timeline, for example, that would be great. I'd love to see it. Well, do you look at this at all as the shows uh, through the looking glass moment where that this is a uh, big game changer or do you feel like this is just a, you know, isolated incident? Yeah, I think it's isolated, but I think the fact that they're willing to do this shows me that we could do it again. And that's something that I'm excited about. As I said previously, I think the through the looking glass moment, I think the game changer is going to be if we get a gene scene outside of a premiere or if we get a gene scene where it's beyond the cold open in the premiere episode next year, that's your game changer. That's where we're like, okay, now the rules were the rules. We've established them and now we've, we've changed the rules and the rules are different now. And so the show is different now. This changes the rules a little bit, but I think it's just license. It gives them license to do it again. I don't think it changes something that within the the universe of Better Call Saul we've come to expect, but it's exciting. It's exciting that they've changed the rules the way they have. So I'm looking forward to them continuing to do that and getting more scenes like this. I think just from a creative standpoint, it's good license for the writers uh, to choose to set scenes in that universe if they feel so appropriate, if they feel that will work, uh, and if they feel that's something they can fill in. Um, That's the opportunity for them to do it never forget i don't think this is the first time that they've done it i think they confirmed uh, subsequently that the scene where the shoes fall down off of the wire and the los pollos hermanos truck is on that route uh, mm-hmm. in the previous season takes place in the breaking bad universe so we have seen a scene from the breaking bad universe on better call saul but this is a full-blown like dialogue based scene from breaking bad that fills in a gap in breaking bad 
Bad that speaks to things we know about from the narrative of Breaking Bad, not just a scene that takes place in the timeline. So it is very different from that shoes scene in that respect. And I think it speaks to their ability and perhaps desire to do it more. And so that's exciting. Okay. Antonio, uh, great catching up here today. Uh, halfway there on Better Call Saul season four. We'll be back to talk about episode number six, Pinata next week. Pinata. Uh, and maybe that's the kids getting beaten up, Rob. Like maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're the pinatas. No, I have a feeling that's not it. I have a feeling that's maybe not it's it, one of the but- cousins' birthday. Oh yeah, just they have a nice pinata there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's is it uh, they're, are they're not twins, are they? Are they just brothers? I don't know. I think they're just brothers, but yeah, maybe if they're twins, I think it would be both of the cousins' birthday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that'd be exciting. <laughs> so. Yeah, we could do that. Let's do that. Let's have a birthday party. Maybe Nacho will do something for them. Yeah, nachos are great on your birthday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, maybe Papa will be there. We need a lack of Papa in this episode. We need more Papa. Yes. All right. right. Well, uh, great stuff. Of course, you'd follow Antonio on Twitter. He is at AC Mazzaro with two Z's and one R. I'm Rob Sestrino on Twitter as well as as in also in real life too and you can email the show uh bcs at uh, postshowrecaps.com uh, it's oh uh how's the sinner podcast it's going great rob that's a fun show it's a mystery and they're dropping little clues left and right throughout the course of the center so josh wiggler and i are having a great time uh breaking that down uh so look for that the later this week the center airs on wednesday nights we try to get it up by the end of the week so we'll definitely be covering uh episode six of the center i think that's a limited run so i think there's only three center episodes left as we record this so hopefully a good ending to the season of the center what else we got going here at post show recap Rob. Oh, Fear the Walking Dead, uh, Game of Thrones as well. So uh, lots of fun stuff. Make sure you subscribe either at least to our Better Call Saul podcast feed, postshowrecaps.com slash BCS iTunes or for our main our main podcast feed, one big pinata filled with podcasts. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. And Rob, uh, I the Hollywood Reporter, no less than at THR on Twitter, was tweeting this week that I should check out Post Show Recaps oh. the Game of Thrones podcast. So very good of them to do that. Oh, that was very nice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, here yeah. we are in the of uh, uh, season five was uh, that uh, so much good stuff going on everyone's favorite game of thrones season it's great yeah i i'm I'm having a good time and uh it's uh it's it's fun to hear the the rewatch uh and and the progress you guys are making on that and i think we've got an official date rob for game of thrones final season so you guys can plot out what you're doing this is all good stuff yeah all right well uh great to talk again antonio we'll be back next week to uh talk about episode number six of season four of better call Saul. take care everybody have a good one bye 